Uh, Again, it's going to be Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kyle. You take your seats. <clears throat> well, good afternoon, Doxology. It's great to be back with you, and welcome back. There's more of you who have returned from winter break, so it's good to see you guys again. And for those of you who are new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. And uh, this is a good day to join our church if you visit our church if you're coming for the first time because we are starting a new series in Matthew's Gospel today or more accurately continuing Matthew's Gospel because we looked at chapters 1 and 2 uh, for Advent, looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. And so uh, with each series or book of the Bible we go through, it's helpful to have one theme that we reiterate over and over to shape us. And The one theme that we want to emphasize as we go throughout Matthew, it should take this year, is that Matthew is about the fact that Jesus brings us into a better kingdom, or just better kingdom for short. So if you remember one thing about Matthew, our time this year, is this idea of better kingdom. And I'm I'm hopeful that as we sit in this and soak in it together throughout this year, it will shape us in in really profound and life-changing ways. Now, Today's sermon will feel a little bit different because today, you know, you notice the passage we read. Uh, some of you asked, wait, we're going to be in chapter four today. I thought we ended in chapter two last time, so we're skipping chapter three. And what we're going to do today is look at an overview of Matthew's gospel. And how we're going to do that is, first of all, look at what are some principles we need to keep in mind anytime we look at a gospel. And the purpose of this, if your eyes are already starting to glaze over, like, oh my gosh, am I entering into a seminary class? The purpose isn't academic, uh, but just what I've found is there are often some of these things that aren't talked about, uh, particularly in a Sunday worship gathering when it comes to uh, how, are the, how is the Bible put together and how do we read different genres of Scripture? And then what happens is, say you take Philosophy 101 in college, or you have a smart, compassionate, skeptical friend who's asking you questions, and it can really you know, disrupt your faith when all of a sudden you're like, wait, how do I know what I know from the gospel? So we'll just look at a couple of things that, that, are, that should be helpful, hopefully, to keep in mind as you read a gospel. If you're exploring the faith today, hopefully you, you learn some things or maybe you, you get some more questions with which we can talk about together. So that'll be the first half of this sermon is just, like, how do we approach Matthew given that it's a gospel? And then the second half, we're going to look at what do we mean by this theme of better kingdom, just to orient us for the year ahead. What does it mean that Jesus brings us into a better kingdom? Okay, so kind of disparate but related themes. So first half, how do we approach the gospel? Second, uh, what does Jesus mean by better kingdom? Okay, all right, so first, let's jump into how to read a gospel. And we'll look at this through, basically this will be one coherent sentence, but we'll go through it three points at a time. So first, it'll just be the fact that a gospel is a historical narrative. So in the scriptures, you have different genres. There's poetry and wisdom literature and letters, right? So some people say, oh, well, you know, in the Bible, there's this line about 
There are, there are, you know, the four corners of the earth. See, God thinks, the Bible thinks, the earth is flat. It's like, no, that was in the genre of poetry. Okay, so knowing the genre that you're in is helpful. The Gospels are historical narrative. And if you look at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we did this during Advent, you'll notice that Matthew starts tracing the genealogy of real people and real history leading up to the birth of Jesus. Okay, so this is history. And then he names people in chapter 2. For example, King Herod. And then his son, King Archelaus. So these are real historical figures that are, um, are verifiable in history. And so the point is, Matthew doesn't start the first two chapters, or he doesn't start the first sentence with, in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or once upon a time. Okay, signaling fable right, or myth or legend. He starts it with a genealogy rooting us in history. And this is both challenging and helpful. It's challenging because when you read a legend, okay, so when you read, you know, name many of the legends, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Cinderella, Frozen, and some of those are more, those are the more pop culture ones, but when you read a myth, how we typically read it is we read it and then we go, okay, there are some helpful moral truths in here, and I can take what I like, I can discard what I don't like, right? That's often how we, lead, how we read, like, Aesop's fables, for example. However, with the Gospels being told as history, where Jesus was and is a real person who really came to earth and really died and really rose from the dead, this places a challenge on us because what this means is if Jesus actually did rise from the dead— then we can't treat the things that he said the same way we treat the things that, say, Marcus Aurelius or Oprah or Taylor Swift or Jordan Peterson say. And I, I just remember there are some avid Taylor Swift fans in this audience, and I've learned not to cross people who like Taylor Swift. But the, I don't think she's an awful person, right? But the point is we need to look at the sayings of Jesus of Nazareth as fundamentally different than other good people who we may follow. Right, because what he said, and that what we what we do with those sayings, you can ignore what he said if you if you wish, but the consequences of doing so, right, for better and for worse, are going to be far more significant because of who he is in history. So the historical figure of Jesus is challenging, but it's also helpful knowing that this is history. And here's what I mean. So when you look at most of the world's major religions how most of them begin is a religious figure claims to have received private divine revelation from the divine and then says, here's what I was told, right? And, and then here are the teachings. So you see this in Islam and Mormonism and Buddhism, among others. And with that type of system, you notice what happens is, is you don't really have any way of falsifying or verifying that what the person's saying is true, because anyone can claim, oh, I heard God whisper in my ear, right? But how do you really know? Okay, but if Jesus actually came onto the stage of human history, right, where he was testified to by many witnesses who saw him, this places Christianity and the person of Jesus in a completely different category as we think about how do we know if Christianity is true or not. I was actually just talking with someone the other day who's not a Christian. He was just talking. He said, you know, what is compelling to me about the Christian faith is that I don't feel like I'm having to just trust some person who claims to have private revelation, right? But there's actually a witness to Jesus 
in history. And if you're looking for a book to read, I mean, it is a little bit more scholastic, but Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Baucom is a, is a great book where he looks at the fact that even as you look at the structure of the Gospels, they have all the markings of sound eyewitness testimony. And the Gospels have more historical reliability than anything else we can know from ancient history. So it is within your rights to say, well, how do we know these aren't legends? How do we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And I understand those objections, but to challenge you a little bit, with all due respect, if, if you're going to take that position, the burden of proof is on you to say that, well, I can't actually trust this as history, because in order to be consistent, you would then have to throw out anything else you know from ancient history, right? The sayings of Aristotle and Plato and the Roman Wars and so forth. So to be consistent, you either need to take this as history or throw out basically anything else you can know from history. So that's number one. First of all, the Gospels are historical narrative. Okay, but they're not just historical narrative. Part two, they're historical narrative with divine and human authorship. So the historic church has long understood the all of the Bible to be written by human authors. However, as God's Spirit has them write what he wants them to say. In other words, the Bible isn't lasered by God and then lowered down from heaven and then we find it in a desert somewhere, right? Or God doesn't put the authors into a trance and then kind of, you know, like puppets them to make them mindlessly write what he wants them to say. But each author of the Bible has their own personality and cultural context and things they want to emphasize to write the Bible. And this, this is going to impact how we read something like the Gospels. And Jesus in characteristic fashion, uh, sums up this understanding of Scripture. If It should be on the screen. You can also bookmark it if you'd like as well. In Matthew chapter 22, he quotes Psalm 110, right? So he quotes Scripture, and this psalm is written by David. And he says in verse 43, Jesus says to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, etc., etc. Psalm 110. In other words, see what he says. How is it that David, so human author, right, but in the Spirit, right, God's Holy Spirit superintending what he says. So Jesus himself understands the Scriptures to be a collaboration, right, between divine and human authorship. How is this helpful? So many implications, but here's one thing I I was thinking through, especially in light of a conversation I had recently this is really helpful, just as one example, to help you work through some objections that maybe you or other people you know have with the Bible. And this is one example. So something that I've often heard is, how can we actually trust that the Gospels are divinely inspired when they're filled with contradictions? And if you look, you can see a lot of things in there that look like contradictions. So for example, Matthew records, I think this is Matthew. Yeah, Matthew records one angel at the tomb in the resurrection account. Luke records two angels at the tomb. What do you do with that? <laughs> you know, so if, God is, if, God, if God lasered the Gospels and then lowers it, it's okay, God, you have the omniscient view. You made a mistake, right? Luke says two angels. Matthew says one. But if the Gospels are written by human authors telling a story, this isn't an issue. So, for example, say later this week I run into someone who knows our church and they weren't here on Sunday, and I say something like, you know, I'm so thankful for our worship team. Uh, Marie and Alyssa and John just really led me into worship this past Sunday. 
And then Kelsey runs, well, Kelsey's not here today, so I have to pick someone else. Cody. Okay, Cody back there. He runs into someone, and he says, oh man, Alyssa and Marie, they sounded so, so great together leading us in worship. Okay, so one of us mentioned three people, the other mentioned two. Is there a contradiction? No, right? We're just, we're each telling a story about what happened, right? And so it's the same way with the gospel writers, what they choose to emphasize and de-emphasize. Matthew will call Jesus' most famous teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Luke will call it the Sermon on the Plain. Could God not get straight? Was it a mountain or a plain? (laughs) No, they each had different understandings of geography, and due to their cultural context, which I won't go into here, led them to call one of them call it the Sermon on the Mount, the other call it the Sermon on the Plain. And so I hope this is somewhat helpful just as we think about these being written by human authors, how it helps us untangle, you know, some of these thorny issues that maybe you wrestle with, maybe you don't care. Hopefully you find this helpful when it comes to the Gospels. Okay, so they're historical narrative with divine and and human authorship. Number three, with a specific emphasis. Okay, so while each Gospel will highlight the significance of Jesus, in particular the importance of his life, death, and resurrection. That's why often the Gospels are referred to as passion narratives with extended introductions, right? because they all emphasize especially his death and resurrection. Each Gospel writer emphasizes a different aspect of Jesus' life. So Mark emphasizes the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. And I can make a case for that. Luke emphasizes the servant nature of Jesus— and in particular, his elevation of women and those who are marginalized. Okay, John emphasizes the unity between Jesus the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and how you and I can be brought into this life-giving communal relationship with them through believing in Jesus. Okay, so each gospel writer has an emphasis to their gospel, and this disturbs some people because they're like, wait, I thought the Bible was inspired by God. Now you're, it's almost as if there's an agenda that, that each gospel writer has. Yes, each gospel writer has an agenda. They even say this. They, they tell you what their agenda is. But here's what's helpful is this is true for any writer of history. So for a long time, especially those influenced by Enlightenment thought, there's this idea that you can just record objective history just writing the brute facts of what happened, right? But more recently, more and more people, including in non-Christian, you know, academic circles, have been realizing that there's no such thing as objective history as if you're this, as if the writer is some, you know, laboratory worker in a white coat, like carefully moving everything around in an objective manner. No, because every writer of a story, of a life, of a historical account has to choose Okay, what data are you going to include? What are you going to exclude? What are you going to emphasize? Right, just by limitations of, of space on paper. So for example, say you're, say you're going to write a biography on Michelle Obama. Okay, do you just write the dry facts of her birth and death and her skin color and hair color and the date that she entered that office and the date that she left the office? Or do you tell a story? And if you tell her story, what do you say? Do you just talk about her time as first lady? Or do you spend more time on her childhood and maybe her family upbringing? Do you spend time on what she did and is doing after her office? Which do you spend the most time on? Do you talk about the influences that shaped her that maybe she herself wasn't aware of? You, know, what, you see, like you have to select and deselect certain things that you're going to say. And so, so it is with the Gospels. They're, they're no different. These are human authors 
And so they're going to not say certain things about the life of Jesus, and they're going to emphasize certain things about the life of Jesus. And Matthew's emphasis is that Jesus brings us into a new and better kingdom. And a a couple ways we see this, I mean, it's all throughout, but we saw during Advent how the whole genealogy is structured to show us that Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel and therefore the world in King David's line. Uh, Here during our scripture passage, we had this read for today, because here you see Jesus' coming out party. And he says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, good trivia to know the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that's what Jesus talked about the most in, in all the gospels. In Matthew 28, Matthew ends his gospel where Jesus says, all authority has, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So emphasizing kingship, authority. Okay, the, the phrase heaven is used in Matthew's gospel 56 times. Matthew's also the only gospel writer to use the kingdom of heaven. Okay, other gospel writers will use the phrase kingdom of God. But Matthew uses that phrase 32 times. And so in your average typeface Bible, we'll see that phrase come up about 1.5 times per page. That's a lot. Okay, so clearly Matthew is trying to communicate to us that Jesus is bringing us into a better kingdom. Okay, so that's how, I mean, a flyover. I'm trying to do Bible school, basically, in, in 10 minutes, okay? But gospel, it's a historical narrative with divine human authorship written with a specific purpose, okay? So next, in light of this theme of Jesus bringing us into a better kingdom, let's ask the obvious question, what does that mean? What does that mean? That, what does better king, what, what does kingdom even mean? And because Jesus talks about this so much in the gospel of Matthew, we have the entire year to fill out what the kingdom of heaven is. And so for today, I want to try to keep things really simple to give us a framework through which we can approach the rest of Matthew's gospel. And let's think of it this way. So when you think of a kingdom, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a story that you tell yourself about the world. Okay, so think think fictional kingdoms. Okay, so Harry Potter, The Lion King, Lord of the Rings, Cinderella. Okay, in each of these stories, there is a kingdom. Okay, so you have a king, or let's take Harry Potter. Okay, so in Harry Potter, you have a king or benevolent authority figure, Dumbledore. When he's in charge, everything goes well. Okay, you also have a place, Hogwarts or Great Britain, depending on if you're muggle or a wizard, or, or witch, or somewhere in between. Okay, you, you, you clearly have good guys and bad guys. You have a moral vision. It's something to the effect of, at least if you're on Dumbledore's team, that magic should be used only to heal and to help, okay, not to harm. Okay, so you have this idea of, okay, who's the rightful authority? Who are the good people and the bad people? What's the moral vision? And you can see this in any story. But the equivalent is true for our day and age as well. Each human being conceives of the world, because we're all story-based creatures, as a kingdom. So each person, you and me included, we have an idea of when X person or people is in charge, the world is going to go in the right direction. Okay, we see this heavily in politics currently. 
And then depending on which political line you're on, or if you're apolitical, you, you still have a line. Okay, the political people are the bad people. <laughs> apolitical people are the good people. Okay, everybody has an idea of who are the good people and the bad people, and what is the moral vision, right? What are the things that I and everyone else needs to be doing to bring life and healing to the world? And so when Jesus comes and he says, I've inaugurated the kingdom of God, and I'm inviting you by grace into my kingdom, the question we shouldn't be asking is, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not currently in a kingdom. I'll decide if I want to step into Jesus' kingdom or not. No, the reality is you're already in a kingdom, okay, whether you recognize it or not. Okay, this kingdom may be formed by your own feelings. It may be formed by your family. It may be formed by the cultural winds. It's probably a combination of all the above, maybe part of your religious upbringing. And what Jesus offers us is to step out of the kingdom we're in and to step into his kingdom. And to try to make this a little bit more concrete for you guys, um, we're going to walk through some different examples of different kingdoms that we are all prone to reside in. And here, full disclosure, I'm drawing this from a cultural commentator named Mark Sayers. He's based in Australia, and he did a teaching on this. A lot of this I'm pulling from him more or less verbatim. I found it helpful. I'm passing it along to you so we can think about, you know, what kingdom am I tempted toward or do I tend to drift toward? And then how does Jesus' kingdom offer a better vision? And so in each, each kingdom of the world, um, real quick, each kingdom is going to offer an answer to these questions. Okay, so what's the purpose of life? What's sin or what's wrong with the world, using less religious language? What is the world? What's reality? What's the attitude toward faith in this kingdom? And then what's the solution? What's going to make everything right? And so here are some examples that Sayers gives, and I think they're uh, pretty accurate. Other authors talk about these kingdoms as well. So first you have the aesthetic kingdom. And in the aesthetic kingdom, the purpose of life is pleasure and experience. So you generally tend to decide what you're going to do or not do by asking the question, is this interesting or not? Does this bring me pleasure or not? So people in the aesthetic kingdom, you tend to be very heavy on experience. You know, so you love travel and restaurants with great vibes and just seeking out, you know, great experiences wherever you can get them. So what is sin? Any institution or person that tries to prevent me from having pleasure. It's interesting, even as you look at the movement in the 60s and 70s, a lot of it was a reaction against the traditionalism and religiosity of the 50s. Like, okay, these norms are way too restrictive. We just need to liberate everybody to pursue pleasure as long as they're not harming someone else. What's the world? It's a playground for your pleasure. Uh, Even right now, we're seeing a change in parenting Whereas in decades prior, parenting often, more often than not, tended to emphasize more uh, virtue formation and discipline formation in children. And now the emphasis is a lot more, I just, I want to make sure my child is happy and is having good experiences. Okay, so attitude toward faith, way too moral, too restricting, got to follow your heart. Uh, Solution, less rules, more pleasure. Okay, aesthetic kingdom. Anyone here in the aesthetic kingdom? We won't judge you. Okay, next, uh, moralistic kingdom. Purpose of life is to do good. If you've noticed, particularly on social media, the phrase virtue signaling has become a lot more popular. Like, it's almost as if this reactionism to the hedonistic or aesthetic kingdom, we've realized, oh, wait, no, there are boundary markers. There is good and bad, even if somebody just thinks they're pursuing pleasure. And so I want to make sure I'm on the right side of history, right, by signaling to other people that I am doing good. Okay, so what is sin or what's wrong with the world? Well, 
it mainly comes from ignorant people who end up oppressing others, either directly or indirectly. And so the solution is they need to be educated, right? So this idea of we're the smart people, other people are the ignorant people, so we just need to get them to the right side of history. What's the world? It's a good place ruined by ignorant, prejudiced people. Attitude toward faith? It's too immoral. Okay, so whereas the aesthetics think religious people are just a bunch of squares. You guys are way too boring. You know, do you guys even have fun in life? Like people in the moralistic kingdom actually will use moral norms to judge the church, right? So you guys are hypocrites or you guys are doing everything wrong. You need to do it this way. And the, so the solution, a high emphasis on education. Next kingdom is the therapeutic kingdom. So in this kingdom, we're seeing this more and more. This is where you're like, I don't even care about having a lot of amazing experiences. I'm just tired of being anxious or depressed or dealing with everything that's hard in the world. I just want to feel peace. I just want to feel inner peace. It's a lot of therapeutic language. And so sin is anyone or institution or thing that creates mental and emotional harm. And this think about how this is problematic, particularly when it comes to Jesus, because he often provokes and challenges us and will create some discomfort, right, as he calls us to follow him. What is the world? It's a dangerous place filled with brokenness and trauma. And so what I need to do is I need to make my world as small as possible to stay safe from harm. These safe spaces on college campuses are just one, one small example of this. Attitude toward faith. Uh, it's acceptable when used as a tool for personal peace. So as long as my faith isn't really creating any kind of right distress or harm or challenging me, that's okay. If it's adding to my end goal of inner peace, it's good. Solution, safety from mental and emotional harm. And to be clear, hopefully, hopefully my tone is conveying this. We're not saying here that everything about each of these kingdoms is evil or bad or wrong. Okay, like, there are truths in each of the kingdoms that we're looking at. Okay, but what we'll see is the kingdom of God will show us how each of these other kingdoms will absolutize things that shouldn't be absolutized and will prioritize things that shouldn't be prioritized. The kingdom of God helps us reorder things in the rightful place. And then finally, the nihilistic kingdom. And if you can chart these kingdoms generationally, which this is super broad brush, but just bear with me, generally speaking— um, you can chart these kingdoms as having a generational trend. So, for example, by and large, many of the boomers tend to view the world through the aesthetic or hedonistic kingdom. Okay, do we see it still? Sure. But that was, by and large, part, um, part of that generation. With Generation X, you saw aesthetic kingdom, but with the moralistic kingdom starting to creep in. Uh, with millennials, people, what, roughly 20 to 40 right now, I think, 20 to 45, something like that. A lot of emphasis on the moralistic kingdom, but especially lately, more of the therapeutic kingdom coming in. And then now, a lot with Gen Z, we see more of the therapeutic kingdom with nihilism starting to come in. And in the nihilistic kingdom, the purpose of life is to feel nothing. Why pursue pleasure? I'm not going to get it anyway. Or I'll pursue pleasure just to mask pain. Why do good? It's not going to do anything about the brokenness of the world. Okay, why try to feel peace? I'm not going to be able to protect myself from everything that can harm me. Okay, so I'm just going to try to feel nothing. 
what sin, it's something that permeates, it's everywhere. <laughs> People who, who tend to be in this kingdom, they have no illusions about the darkness of the world and the brokenness and how hard it, how hard it is. What's the world? It's a disaster. Okay, institutions are corrupt, the church is corrupt, the left is corrupt, the right's corrupt. It's bad, here's your survival kit, do a TikTok dance, it's a disaster. Attitude toward faith, it's corrupt just like everything else. So the solution, just in any way you can, retreat, escape. And with this kingdom in particular, I, I do think we need to be addressing it more as a church because, I mean, there are more and more people who really do believe that there is no hope in the world. Okay, and so this, this isn't just a thought experiment, but the kingdom of God has profound implications. Okay, if this is you today— or if it's for, for people you know. We're seeing more and more of this in our culture. It's relatively new, at least within our you know, current century. More and more people are feeling this way. Okay, and so then Jesus comes in, and he offers us the kingdom of God. And so this is a, this is a brief overview here. Okay, but in the kingdom of God, there is a purpose in life, and you are made for a purpose. As we saw in our anthropology series, you are made to image God and to experience life to the full by being in relationship with him. What is sin? Sin in its heart is a failure to love. It's a failure to love God, a failure to love neighbor rather than living for God and neighbor. This is the root of all dysfunction in the world. What is the world? Well, the world is created good by God, and you as an image bearer were made to take the things of creation in your work and in your play and in your family and steward those things for the, the glory of God and for the good of other people. But the world is often fractured and fallen by sin. And so many of your aspirations are not going to be met or realized in this life. Because there, there's a very nuanced view toward the world. Attitude toward faith. The attitude toward faith is the good news of the gospel. That while you are made as an image bearer of, of, of God, made by God and loved by God, we are also sinners. We spurn God. We don't love God. But God shot through with mercy and kindness. He's the only God who creates and sustains a kingdom based on grace. Comes into the world in Jesus. And Jesus at the cross, he takes on all the darkness and all the pain and judgment that you and I deserve for our sin. And then when he bursts out of the grave, he invites you and me each to have the opportunity to bend our knee and worship him as king and lord. And then partake with him in his project of renewing the world in the kingdom of God. It's not here in full yet, but we do see glimpses of it. Okay, and it is really happening. So what is the solution? It's Christ and his kingdom breaking out. And notice that this kingdom critiques, it affirms and critiques each of the other kingdoms that we looked at. Okay, so the world is beautiful and meant to, the aesthetics of it are meant to be experienced. Relationships and creation and the arts and good food, but in their proper place and never at the expense of commitment. The problem with the aesthetic kingdom is if you're living the aesthetic life, it fundamentally erodes your ability to keep commitment. Right, because often being committed to a person or a church or a community, eventually it's going to get not shiny. It's going to feel boring. It's going to feel difficult. Okay, so the kingdom of God allows us to enjoy the pleasures of life, but in its proper place. Okay, contra the moralistic kingdom, yes, we are called as God's image bearers and as his people 
to do good. There are absolute norms, rights and wrongs in the world. However, you cannot do good on your own strength. If you've ever tried to actually practice forgiveness and compassion and sacrificial love, this is something you cannot do on your own. You need the power of God's Spirit to do it for you. And God gives us His Spirit. And also, contrary to the moralistic kingdom, we never have a right to feel superior or condescending toward people we don't feel on, who, who we don't feel are on the right side of history, who don't feel, who we don't feel have it right. Why? Because we're saved by grace. Okay? And it's only by God's mercy that we're in His kingdom. Okay, contra the therapeutic kingdom, Jesus does offer you the peace of Christ. But this isn't a peace that you get from screening out everything dangerous and hard in the world. It's not an inner peace that you can only get by buying a big beanbag chair and putting it in your room and then listen out to ambient Swedish techno. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's the peace of Christ that comes supernaturally and helps you persevere even in the midst of hard circumstances. And Christ promises to be with you until peace on earth is realized in full. And then contrary to the nihilistic kingdom, the, the Bible says everywhere, and if you guys didn't listen to Dr. John's sermon on trauma when he came last fall, I encourage you to listen to it. All throughout the Bible, God gives voice to the real pain and hurt that you experience in your life. Okay, so God gives voice to it, he meets you in it, and he promises to have done and continuing to do something about it. Okay, because best of all in the kingdom of God, you don't just get the kingdom with various accoutrements, but you get the king himself. Okay, who actually knows your wounds, he knows your sorrows, and he's conquered death itself so that you can have hope. And this is the kingdom that he invites us to partake in with him. It often looks underneath the radar. It often looks less extraordinary than we would like it to look. But Jesus invites you to come into his story that he is moving forward through his church, and then we get to, we get to do that together. And so I hope as we move into Matthew this year, uh, we'll all just grow in very small but real ways what it looks like to live in this kingdom and experience it both as individuals and as a community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for not leaving us to choose a kingdom apart from you. Uh, but you give us something better. And I pray for each person in this room who, maybe this is maybe this is still feeling relatively academic or not having much relevance to their life, but I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and through those in their lives that you'll help them see the earthiness of your kingdom and how much you do offer each person uh, when they come into your kingdom. Not that all of their problems are resolved today, uh, but the real riches they begin to enjoy now and will experience in full when you come to renew all things. Uh, help us to be a people who, when others look at us, they don't see a group that always practices what they preach and is this amazing community that gets everything right, but help us to see, help them to see us as a community who, while we are sinners and while we do fail and make mistakes and, and hurt other people, that we're quick to repent, admit when we're wrong, and to seek forgiveness because we've been saved by a forgiving Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.